This is the ACR 2023 Daily Podcast. Here you'll listen to faculty recordings, discussions, and interviews taken from the ACR Convergence Meeting in San Diego. I hope you enjoy this recording. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines, reporting virtually for Room Now at the ACR 2023. Abstract number 0723 by Dr. Deng and colleagues from China caught my attention during the plenary sessions on Monday, and I'm here to talk about their study. The objectives of their study were to investigate the pathogenesis of SLE pulmonary arterial hypertension and identify new biomarkers that could aid in the diagnosis or aid in developing novel therapeutic targets for SLEPAH. So this basic science study had three parts. First, they performed whole exome sequencing on peripheral blood samples of 150 patients with SLEPAH, then conducted a genome-wide association study. Next, they performed in vitro intervention experiments on human pulmonary endothelial cells. And lastly, the group established SLEPAH mouse models with lupus phenotypes and increased mean pulmonary arterial, arterial pressure levels. So what did the results show? Well, using the WES and the GWAS, they identified the tumor necrosis factor receptor-associated factor 5 or TRAF5 as a susceptible gene in SLEPAH. Through transcriptional analysis, they found a significant reduction in TRAF5 expression in the peripheral blood of SLEPAH patients. So simply put, lack of TRAF5 triggers the pathophysiology of SLEPH according to their findings. Now, based on the flow cytometry analysis of human pulmonary endothelial cells, there was a significant increase in early apoptotic cells and loss of migratory ability of these cells um, following TRAF5 knockdown. And injection of a TRAF5 overexpression in the mouse models attenuated PAH symptoms. Now, SLE pulmonary, SLE-associated pulmonary arterial hypertension may not be as common as the other pulmonary manifestations of SLE, but once diagnosed, it confers significant morbidity and mortality. So what are the implications of this study? Well, biomarkers such as TRAF5 will help further the understanding of SLEPH pathogenesis with potential utility as a diagnostic tool or may even pave the way for novel therapeutic targets for SLEPH. I'm looking forward to future findings of this study. Follow me on X at Rumorampa and tune in to Room Now for more reports and videos of the ACR Convergence 2023. Thank you. Hi, everybody. It's Mike Putman reporting from ACR Convergence 2023 for Room Now. Um, I am excited to be discussing Abstract 1071 today with Maddie O'Sullivan. She's an internal medicine resident, chief resident at the University of Utah, who's applying to rheumatology. 
Now, I saw her abstract earlier today, which is about the mortality of patients with rheumatoid arthritis who receive checkpoint inhibitors. It's something that I think about a lot with my patients who develop um, diseases that require them, which seems to be all of them these days. And her abstract piqued my interest. So, Maddie, why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, the question you were trying to answer? Yeah, so there's um, a theoretical risk that patients with underlying mm -hmm. autoimmune disease, and in particular rheumatoid arthritis, may experience adverse events related to their underlying autoimmunity, or they may um, experience decreased efficacy of the immune checkpoint inhibitors when needed mm -hmm. for treating their cancer. Um, so our objective was to look at patients with underlying rheumatoid arthritis before receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors, comparing their mortality rates and specific causes of death compared to those patients receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors without underlying rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, so I, I love that. I feel like oftentimes we look for outcomes that don't matter a whole lot and they're sort of nebulous, but yeah. there's nothing nebulous about death. All of our patients are yeah. like, you know, take that outcome measure seriously. So um, you have a good outcome measure and this is an important question. So tell me what did you find? So we used data from uh, the VA um, and we looked at a sample of about 300 patients with underlying rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and those patients were matched based on their age, sex, and their year of VA okay. enrollment compared to patients um, in the VA without a diagnosis of RA. They were similar at baseline in terms of um, their demographic characteristics, their specific subset of cancer diagnoses, and the type of uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor that was used to treat their cancer. Um, and then we uh, did an analysis to examine kind of differences in mortality and causes of death. Very cool. So you got a big group of people. They're VA patients. Um, it's a nice area to do research. We can actually get kind of granular data for epidemiology there. And you asked a relevant question, and I think you had a big enough sample size to sort of actually answer it. You know, a lot of times studies like this wind up being really small, like what happened to 17 people? We had 300 people with RA, and then a whole lot more who didn't. Uh, excellent. All right. So what were the results? Give me the big conclusion here. <laughs> so we found that there was no significant difference in yes. mortality rates yeah. uh, among these patients and that they, they had similar causes of death. So the majority of patients okay. did die from uh, their, their malignancy mm -hmm. um, and a, a vast minority of patients died um, of infectious complications and those rates were similar between the two groups. Very cool. So this is highly relevant to patients with rheumatoid arthritis because you know, if you're a patient with rheumatoid arthritis, you go on a drug that's going to ramp up your immune system and you say, well, I'm also on drugs to ramp down my immune system. Exactly. How is this going to work? And so it seems like patients in that demographic do similarly, which is pretty encouraging. Right. So if you were to counsel a patient with rheumatoid arthritis about this study, what would you tell them? Like, how, What would be your take-home message for them? I think that there's, you know, there's good data that shows that patients with RA tend to experience flares during the duration of their immune checkpoint yep. inhibitor therapy. So we would talk about that, but I think that I would be able to reassure them based off this data that, that um, we expect that these drugs will be um, effective and that they, they won't have you know, an increase in other non-autoimmune related adverse events that, that may increase yeah. their mortality. I love it. Simple, to the point, highly relevant, and I think a message that our patients would be glad to hear. Uh, so thanks so much for letting me interview you. Uh, be sure to follow Room Now for all the great coverage from ACR Convergence 2023. Thank you. Experience adverse events related to their underlying autoimmunity, or they may um, experience decreased efficacy of the immune checkpoint inhibitors when needed mm -hmm. for treating their cancer. 
Um, so our objective was to look at patients with underlying rheumatoid arthritis before receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors, comparing their mortality rates and specific causes of death compared to those patients receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors without underlying rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, so I, I love that. I feel like oftentimes we look for outcomes that don't matter a whole lot and they're sort of nebulous, but yeah. there's nothing nebulous about death. All of our patients are yeah. like, you know, take that outcome measure seriously. So um, you have a good outcome measure and this is an important question. So tell me, what did you find? So we used data from uh, the VA um, and we looked at a sample of about 300 patients with underlying rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and those patients were matched based on their age, sex, and their year of VA okay. enrollment compared to patients um, in the VA without a diagnosis of RA. They were similar at baseline in terms of um, their demographic characteristics, their specific subset of cancer diagnoses, and the type of uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor that was used to treat their cancer. Um, and then we uh, did an analysis to examine kind of differences in mortality and causes of death. Very cool. So you got a big group of people. They're VA patients. Um, that's a nice area to do research. We can actually get kind of granular data for epidemiology there. And you asked a relevant question, and I think you had a big enough sample size to sort of actually answer it. You know, a lot of times studies like this wind up being really small, like what happened to 17 people? We had 300 people with RA, and then a whole lot more who didn't. Uh, excellent. All right. So what were the results? Give me the big conclusion here. <laughs> so we found that there was no significant difference in yes. mortality rates yeah. uh, among these patients and that they, they had similar causes of death. So the majority of patients okay. did die from uh, their, their malignancy mm -hmm. um, and a, a vast minority of patients died um, of infectious complications and those rates were similar between the two groups. Very cool. So this is highly relevant to patients with rheumatoid arthritis because you know, if you're a patient with rheumatoid arthritis, you go on a drug that's going to ramp up your immune system and you say, well, I'm also on drugs to ramp down my immune system. Exactly. How is this going to work? And so it seems like patients in that demographic do similarly, which is pretty encouraging. Right. So if you were to counsel a patient with rheumatoid arthritis about this study, what would you tell them? Like, how, What would be your take-home message for them? I think that there's, you know, there's good data that shows that patients with RA tend to experience flares during the duration of their immune checkpoint yep. inhibitor therapy. So we would talk about that, but I think that I would be able to reassure them based off this data that, that um, we expect that these drugs will be um, effective and that they, they won't have you know, an increase in other non-autoimmune related adverse events that, that may increase yeah. their mortality. I love it. Simple, to the point, highly relevant, and I think a message that our patients would be glad to hear. Uh, so thanks so much for letting me interview you. Uh, be sure to follow Room Now for all the great coverage from ACR Convergence 2023. Thank you. Hey everyone, Jack Cush, Janet Pope. We're here at ACR 23 in San Diego. We were just talking and thought, let's stop talking and put this on uh, Room Now. And the discussion goes something like, what about that oral surveillance study? You know, it really was an eye-opener. It did change a lot of the practice habits. It changed regulatory rules and whatnot. And the question is, the, how impactful is this into your practice? And when we do surveys of people, ask people to raise their hands, a healthy number, you know, not quite the majority of people say they're using less of these drugs and whatnot. But what we were talking about is since that study, the oral surveillance, also known as the 1133 study, the safety study, done to show that um, JAK inhibitors were, uh, when given to high-risk individuals, increased the odds of, of coronary events like MACE events and also certain malignancies when compared to those who got treated with a TNF inhibitor. And, and so again, all these changes. But since that happened, there are a bunch of studies that have ensued. 
what do we call these? I call them um, apology studies. You call them? I, I would call them cohorts enriched. I would call them probably uh, data mining and databases, administrative databases, which we do do. Right. And so why do these studies show up trying to compare what they do to what was done in oral surveillance? So explain to the audience what's what we're seeing so like one is a abstract later on today it's a 1632 the rabbit registry talking about cancers and they're looking at their cohort of patients treated with biologics and then they do a selected cohort meaning it's modeled after that high risk oral surveillance cohort and then there are other studies like what that have done the same well, there's the STAR RA, where it was a whole bunch of administrative databases put together. And what it showed in the regular group, uh, a JAK versus a TNF, it showed no differences in cancer or cardiovascular. But when they enriched for the um, patients that would have met the criteria, they didn't have everything, they don't have smoking, but they had a lot of baseline characteristics from an administrative database. When they matched, there was no statistical difference, but numerically, the numbers were actually pretty close to what was found in the oral surveillance. So when you do that, when you when you enrich your cohort, whether it's a registry, whether it's administrative claims data, whether it's people all in your hospital, and, and you have this cohort and then you enrich it for high risk, over age 50 or even higher in age, with a cardiovascular risk factor, and the more you throw in, yeah, you're gonna change the numbers of adverse events seen because it's a higher risk population. The question is, are they seeing the same thing as was seen in oral surveillance, and is that um, a valid comparison? Do you think that these are valid comparisons when they're, these are retrospective, reenacted data sets meant to conform and they come up with a different message? Well, first of all, I am an epidemiologist, so I publish or perish. Right. So I would, I would do these sorts of studies, but that doesn't mean um, that the order of evidence, the order of evidence would be first a well-conducted randomized control trial where you're actually collecting the events very carefully and you should have even confounders in both groups. So what we know, the known confounders, but also the unknown ones. They didn't collect like fully in oral surveillance the amount of smoking, how many pack years, when did you stop, if you had stopped. So that could be kind of confounded, right? But that should be by randomization equal in the three groups that were right. in oral surveillance. Right. So I think once you do these studies that you're saying want be or apology studies or what you're going to call them they really aren't the same there there still can be channeling bias I might not prescribe in this high-risk person because I knew the trial was going on if we think oral surveillance has been going on for several years before it was published right an event-driven study so maybe you would subconsciously or consciously not prescribe perhaps a jack in certain individuals. However, I don't think we're that savvy sometimes. I think really um, when you're looking for a needle in the hair stock, uh, haystack, because these are rare events, when you're looking for them, you probably need large high-risk numbers for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So the rabbit registry that's being presented, very reassuring. Uh, there's really no differences statistically, propensity scoring, matching, all that kind of good jazz. Uh, they're not finding it. On the other hand, 
and what do I believe? I still think a randomized controlled trial has more weight in my mind than these other studies, but I think the bottom line is these are uncommon events. Most patients, even at high risk, aren't going to get them. The highest risk of a cardiovascular event is having had one. Then it's a whole bunch of stacking the cardiovascular risks together as opposed to a 55-year-old non-smoker who has mild hypertension. That's not really a high-risk patient in my mind. You know, you said something today at a session that you were chairing that I thought was brilliant, and I don't know the audience caught it. And the idea is that when you do these kinds of analyses, especially when retrospective and data manipulation, is it proof of principle or is it hypothesis generating was exactly what you said. And I remember the first time I heard that was back in the Cox 2 um, hearings, three-day hearings at the FDA, and uh, three days of data about, uh, you know, all the three COX inhibitors, uh, Milton Packer, another well-known epidemiologist in the cardiology world, got up and said, registry data is sometimes the best you can do, but the best it is is hypothesis generating. It is never proof of principle. And that's really true with these efforts that are done to, um, again, to sort of test the waters, see what's, what, they're, what they're finding. Uh, but it really isn't proof. And, yeah, if they, someone wants to refute the oral surveillance study, they're going to have to spend the money find the 5,000 patients, follow them for four years, and then do all the analyses and face the heat. Right, and that's not going to happen. However, we will get data from the baricitinib study, and although they're enriched for VTE, VTE is overlapping in risk, not fully, of cardiovascular risk. So we might get answers, but I have a feeling it will be inconclusive because it's not powered to do that. On the other hand, again, as an epidemiologist, we look at the strength of the data. So if you have an outlier and a whole bunch of things that aren't outliers, you have to say, well, maybe the risk is really true, but the magnitude of the risk is it has not and reproduce, so maybe it's really even rarer than we think, bad luck, or you have to say you, you believe the order of the best data are RCT or meta-analyses of RCTs. The next be better data are cohorts, prospectively collected, then it's administrative databases, case control, case series. So for the audience, um, remind them what the baricitinib study that you alluded to is right. going to do? Right. So uh, FDA mandated, uh, Lily is doing a baricitinib RCT, so it's baricitinib compared to a TNF inhibitor and they're looking they had to have high-risk VTE and I'm not sure of all the inclusion criteria and it's event driven so to really say over time are thrombotic events more prevalent in one group the other and it would be as well a non-inferiority right. so the rates have to be within a confidence interval to be considered about the same so what I learned in this discussion is that if you're going to talk to an epidemiologist you better know about the trial design and the strength of evidence. Absolutely. Tune in for more videos at Room Now. Thank you. Hi everyone, my name is Professor Peter Nash from Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane in Australia, reporting for Room Now from ACR Convergence in San Diego 2023. I thought we'd discuss a couple of the Premalast uh, abstracts presented here. One is abstract 1691 which looks at the foremost study. Now the foremost study is interesting because it took patients with less than five years of disease. In fact, they had a median of six months of disease and a mean of about 10 months, so they're quite early patients. And they focused on a group we commonly see and we commonly get asked to see, which is the oligoarthritis group. 
and these patients had to have more than one but less than four swollen joints and they had to have, um, this study went for 24 weeks. The primary endpoint was one that they uh, developed which was called minimal disease activity but focusing on joints. So the mandated improvement in the joints and they added three out of five of the other elements, skin, uh, patient pain, patient global, as well as uh, skin itself and uh, function. So the primary endpoint was the MDA joints at 16 weeks and they looked at all the usual other secondary uh, parameters. You could escape at 16 weeks. At the end of 24 weeks, all placebo patients went on to um, active drug out to 48 weeks and they had 90% of patients who lasted and maintained out to 48 weeks. They had about a third of the patients who were CSDMARD naive and about 40% had concomitant background therapy, mainly methotrexate and a little bit of sulfasalazine. So they had to have active disease. They had uh, C-DAPSs of over 16, PASTASs of 5, 6% had body surface area greater than 3%, active hack, and 64% had a score called the PAS and was not in an acceptable state. They were mainly about 50-year-olds, 58% women. And most of the joint involvement were in the PIP joints and um, a small number discontinued, mainly for uh, nuisance adverse effects like diarrhoea. Um, the uh, primary endpoint, as I said, was 16 weeks MDA joints. They, it was a placebo-controlled double-blind trial against 30 milligrams twice a day of a premolast, and they had uh, significant improvements in tender joints, in body surface area, in patient pain, patient global and hack and numerically superior results for numerically better results for swollen joints and leads enthesitis score. So we had a bunch of oligo patients, a bunch of early disease patients who did well on a premolas compared to um, placebo. So what's the implications of this study? In our country we can only get a premolas for psoriasis and we wanted it as adjunctive add-on therapy for patients who had milder disease, patients who were only partially controlled with a biologic or one other agent, and that's where I think it will fit in the best. In our country, we have to have failed two conventional synthetic agents for 24 weeks to be eligible for a biologic agent, and we would like those two to be methotrexate and a premolast before going to a biologic rather than leflunamide or sulfasalazine which really has very little evidence of efficacy, no efficacy much on skin and other domains like axial, radiological progression etc. So we'd like to see a premolast approved in our country for those patients who needed an add-on therapy for partial response, for those patients with milder disease, for those patients who are recovering from an adverse effect and need some therapy, and we see there's an important role in the future for this particular agent if we can get it approved by our regulators and our reimbursers. Thank you very much for your attention. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now here at ACR 23 in San Diego. 
Today at the plenary session, this is Tuesday, uh, there was a great presentation about methotrexate use in RA. This is abstract 1583 presented by Varun Deer, where he presented the results of the study which looked at single-dose oral methotrexate versus split-dose oral methotrexate, both given weekly in a large cohort of RA patients. The study was done at six centers in India. These are patients with about two years of disease activity and uh, a mean age at entry of around 41 years. They had to have be seropositive. They had to have at least four tender and two swollen joints. And they were started on 15 milligrams, escalated to 20 in two weeks, and then 25 uh, by week four. And everyone was treated with 25 milligrams per week with supplemental folic acid. The primary endpoint of the study was unfortunately week 24. I'll say unfortunately because at week 16, they were still just on methotrexate, right? But at week 16, if they had a DAS that was greater than 3.2, the doctors could have added on leflunamide or sulfazalazine. And then the end of the study was six months or week 24. And that was the primary endpoint. Big mistake, as I'll show you in the results. So again, um, the study was sort of well-recruited and, and well-tolerated. The primary endpoint was at week 24, and the primary endpoint measure was a ULAR good response. Got to say, I really still don't know what a ULAR good response is. And you know what? It wasn't different between split-dose oral and single-dose uh, methotrexate, 25 milligrams a week. However, if you looked at week 16, when people were just on um, uh, methotrexate only with no other add-ons the differences were significant and highly significant at week 16 split dose oral ACR 20 was 76 percent versus 52 with single dose um, ACR 50 55 percent versus 35 percent ACR 70 25 versus 14 percent that's significant now why am I making a big deal out of this the problem is, once you use more than 15 milligrams of methotrexate, you know that oral absorption is highly variable and could go down by as much as 50%. And that's why when you get up to 15 milligrams a week, you should be going into split dose oral. And what does that mean? The people that got 25 milligrams got 25 milligrams all at once on Wednesday morning. The people who got the split dose oral got 15 in the morning and 10 milligrams in the evening. And what that does is it greatly increases the absorption and the blood levels of methotrexate on par with that achieved by giving a parenteral dose of methotrexate. So that's why the study really helps inform practice that when you, once you're above 15 milligrams, you probably should go to split dose oral and you'll see really optimal outcomes for um, your patients receiving methotrexate for RA. The question is, as you, as you go to split dose oral and you deliver more drug to the patient, to the cell, do you not increase toxicity? And you should. However, in this study, they really didn't. They had actually more transaminitis, um, but these were not significant. They did have um, a little bit more in the way of um, uh, of nausea and or GI symptoms, but it was not significant, right? Other things that were important in this study, the patients who got split dose oral had better improvement in their DASH-28. They had um, uh, less need for rescue DMARDs, the addition of liflutamide or sulfazalazine. That was like for 35% in people on split dose oral versus 55% in people that were on the single dose once a week. 
So this study, which was an open-label blinded assessor study, 24 weeks, 253 patients, really does help inform practice, and I think you'll be hearing a lot about it. It comes from ACR 23. Tune in for more. Hi, it's David Liu here, reporting from San Diego. We're back for ACR Convergence 2023. Rumnaz here covering a whole lot of different things. We've got a lot of jack inhibitor coverage as well. And I want to tell you a little bit about a really interesting post I saw, post 0429, which it takes data from the Select Compare study. So that's a study which compared upadacitinib to adalimumab, the clinical trial. They've done a post-hoc analysis of this. And I think it's really interesting because it tells us there's some, some hints from this, but then I wonder what this means going forward. It looks at pain, and we all struggle with pain in our rheumatoid arthritis patients. We all don't know what to do when we've got rid of inflammation and there's still pain there. I think it's the kind of thing that keeps us up at night in terms of what this means for our patients. That's when our patients don't work, walk away as satisfied as they could be. This study looks specifically at comparing adalimumab to upadacitinib and there's some fancy mediation analysis to try and understand what contributions come directly from uh, pain improvement from the, the medicine itself versus pain improvement that comes through improving inflammation. So trying to look at surrogates from inflammation, things like ESR, trying to look at the, the swollen joint counts, comparing those to the other effects that might not be accounted for that. And so using a bit of this fancy cute analysis, we can try and see how much of the pain improvement might be from the drug itself versus from inflammation improvements. What this shows is actually upadacitinib implies that upadacitinib has a direct effect on reducing pain compared to adalimumab. And I think that's really interesting if that's the case. So this is potentially something which is an enormous selling point. If we can say, well, JAK inhibitors, JAK1 inhibitor like upadacitinib has benefits beyond the inflammation, then that's something we might think about. Now, it feels like we've heard this before, because we have. We've seen data about baricitinib implying the same kind of thing. We've seen in psoriatic arthritis. We've seen um, data from giselkumab implying the same kind of thing. But we can only take these implications so far. How, what is this meant to mean for us? Because I think we look at this data and think, well, maybe that patient with a more fibromyalgic outlook on their rheumatoid arthritis, maybe that's the kind of patient I might want to use upadacitinib for versus a TNF inhibitor. Now, I think that's a slightly harder thing, post-oral surveillance, but we're trying to find the patients who will benefit from upadacitinib. Maybe those are the ones who, who might. If those are the patients that are going to benefit, let's see clinical trials in that. And maybe that's just me being unrealistic, but what I would love to see are rheumatoid arthritis patients with a fibromyalgic overlay, type of patients who might not necessarily ordinarily get into clinical trials, see those patients and give them UPA versus adalimumab, and let's see whether UPA outperforms, especially on that pain, and leads to real improvements in the fibromyalgia that overlies rheumatoid arthritis. For plenty more on JAK inhibitors, rheumatoid arthritis, and plenty more, go down to roomnow.com. You know what to do.